We're exploring the world of BDCs. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen, joined on the phone today by Jordan Wathen. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Jordan uh, is one of our contributors for Fool.com. He focuses mostly on the BDC industry, business development companies, but he has he has his hands in, in all over the place. So we're going to go through that in a little bit. But Jordan, just off the top, um, a couple shows ago, we talked about uh, the bull market has been going on for, for five years now, if that's what you want to call it, or five years since the bottom uh, in March 09. When you kind of look at the market in general, um, what are you seeing? Do you still see value out there, or is it getting harder to find good companies to buy? Well, I, I think for the most part, um, obviously you're paying a lot higher prices than you were in the past. Um, I'm less excited about the market today than I was, say, a couple of years ago. Uh, I look out there, I think the S&P is trading about like 18 times earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, earnings have gone up. And you look, say, four years ago or so to 2010, and you're looking at maybe a 15 times multiple. So you've had some multiple expansion there. And then also you've had the economic recovery. I mean, back in 2010, we had something like 10% unemployment. Now it's 6.7%, something mm-hmm. like that. So I think you're paying higher prices, but I think there's still value out there. I mean, especially, you know, we talk a lot about financials, obviously. And I think the financial space has some interesting opportunities, more so than others. So despite the fact that the economy is perhaps in better shape than it was two years ago. That doesn't make you feel better about, okay, well, the economy's in a good position. Earnings could earnings growth could really pick up and then justify the multiples there. Are you kind of more cautious than that? Well, I'm a little more cautious than that. You know, I like to think about it through a whole cycle. And so right now, obviously, the tough question is, where are we? You mm-hmm. know, it's, an, it's not an easy thing to answer, obviously, but so when I look out there, I'm saying, yeah, maybe we'll get, you know, 3 4% GDP growth. That's great. But you're also paying, you know, significantly more for a company today than you were just even last year. What, it we're up like 35 37%, something like mm-hmm. that? Yep. So, I mean, obviously, anytime you're paying higher prices for stocks, your expected return over long periods of time is obviously lower. Mm-hmm. You know, this is in 2010 where you're buying – at very low earnings levels, you know, and then at a lower, at a significantly lower multiple. So, you know, I'm a little more cautious today, but I think, you know, it's never a bad time to own stocks necessarily. All right. And one of the stock kind of segments that you look at a lot, and I alluded to at the very beginning of the show here is BDCs, and that's business development companies. And I know Several of our listeners have expressed interest that, hey, I wish you guys would talk about BDCs more. So we are answering their their questions here, and we are bringing you on, our BDC expert. So for those of our listeners that don't know what BDCs are, can you give us like the 30,000-foot view of what a BDC is and why they have such big dividends? Because that's usually why they get on people's radar in the first place. Right, exactly. So, okay, so from 30,000 feet, a BDC is complicated, right? That's, <laughs> that's the best explanation for 30,000 feet. But the way, I guess, the way that I would explain this to my mother, who's, mm-hmm. you know, not at all interested in stocks, is it's kind of like a mutual fund of sorts that you can buy on the stock exchange. Now, the difference is that because it's trade on the stock exchange, well, the difference primarily is that it invests in middle market companies. So companies that aren't public, companies that are too small to go public, 
and companies that really just can't get attention from, say, the Goldman Sachs of the world or a J.P. Morgan investment banking arm. Mm-hmm. These are kind of more more regional companies, I guess, companies that would never get a billion-dollar market cap. They're usually somewhere in the range of, you know, maybe $100 million to mm-hmm. $200 million. And so a BDC is kind of like an, ED, like an ETF or a mutual fund in that it invests in the debt and equity of these smaller companies. Gotcha. Now, what makes them unique for the most part is that, like REITs or real estate investment trusts, they have to pass on 90% of their income as a dividend. So all, almost all of their earnings is coming back to you in a fairly lucrative dividend yield. So looking at the, at the big ones, you mentioned investing in these smaller middle market companies. Are they investing primarily through kind of taking equity stakes in the company, or are most of the big BDCs investing via, via debt and giving loans to these smaller companies that obviously pay probably bigger interest rates than your, your huge multinational? Right. So on, you know, on average, let's say the average BDC, it's probably 90% debt, and then the other 10% is made up with equity investments. Uh, the debt is what really generates the dividend yield because it brings in the consistent interest payments. Mm-hmm. And so, when we talk about you know high yields and BDCs, you know it kind of helps to have some kind of benchmark. The average BDC might lend at seven to even twenty percent per year, and your average junk bond of you know really high yield uh, bond is going to yield about five point three percent right now. Mm-hmm. So the difference there is fairly remarkable. Right. So so like a REIT they pass through the income so they don't get taxed at, at kind of the corporate level and so as long as they pass it through they're fine right right so as long as they pass at least 90 percent through they're fine there's some other rules they have to pass out something like 98 percent to avoid a small four percent excise tax but for the most part what you'll see is we'll pass out significantly all or even more than they earn in any given year where you'll have a payout ratio of you know 95 to 105 percent to say gotcha um so now that we have kind of the general industry outlook or kind of what they do, who have been the leaders in the space and how have they become the leaders? Do they kind of have their hands everywhere across the country? Do they focus in regions? Do they focus in certain industries? Who are the, who are the big players in the BDC space? So, you know, if I were to define it, I would say there's three leaders and I define leaders in a, you know, totally different way. Like, so you have the big guy and that's Aries Capital. They're kind of the 800-pound grill in the room. Uh, And it's one of the oldest BDCs. uh, And it's also part of Aries Management, which is a massive, just a massive private equity firm. Mm -hmm. So it kind of uh, gets to, you know, ride on the shoulder of a giant there. Um, Aries Capital is kind of a leader because they kind of represent the uh, more traditional BDC. Uh, They work with private equity-backed companies, private equity firms to help, you know, sponsor buyouts of these smaller companies. And then, of course, Aries, because it's a part of Aries management, uh, has relationships with about 375 different private equity firms. So a private equity firm will call up Aries Capital and say, hey, we want to buy out this company. Can you take the debt in it? Or can you take the debt and a little bit of equity? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of Aries. You know, they have a roughly $8.1 billion balance sheet, which definitely makes them one of the biggest out there. Right. And, and then there's prospect capital, which is also fairly large. I think it's something, balance sheet somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 billion. And they're kind of, I call them a leader because they're kind of the go anywhere BDC. They don't really follow the traditional footpath of, 
hey, let's go find a private equity sponsor and team up with them on a deal. They're a little more entrepreneurial, I guess. So they uh, they like uh, recently they've gone more into consumer lending mm-hmm. and some subprime origination, and that's kind of something you don't typically see with the BDC because they're very limited in what they can invest in, and financial companies get complicated for them. But so and also they tend to like uh, some more off the path things. So they recently closed on a huge, like several huge deals for some apartment complexes. Hmm. And that's again, something, you know, you wouldn't ordinarily see. And then finally you've got a main street capital, which is kind of the little dark horse BDC. And I think what makes them really interesting is that they work with the very, very small companies on the middle market range. So you're talking companies that might make three to $5 million a year like a company that could literally be right down the street in a small town. And in doing that, they get much higher yield than you'd see from, say, an Aries Capital or Prospect Capital. Because, obviously, as you go down the size chain, you're taking on a little more risk. You've got more, say, underwriting costs associated with it. Mm -hmm. And they're just really interesting from that perspective because they deal more with, say, a family-owned company than a private equity-backed, you know, I don't know how to put a bigger private equity-backed company as part of you know an institutional portfolio. So Main Street's almost going out there and working with the businesses rather than a private equity sponsor coming to uh, an, an Aries and saying, hey, we've already planned this whole thing. How would you guys like to provide the financing and get in on the deal? Right, exactly. I would say that's one of the big distinctions, especially with the lower middle market. You have to think about it. A lot of times you have say, a family that wants to sell out because they have to pay estate taxes when the founder passes away. Mm-hmm. So they go to Main Street and say, hey, we need, we, you know, we need to cash out of this. This business is too small. You know, it would never, ever list on Wall Street. But we need to cash out. Can you guys come in? Or you have two family members who disagree on how to run the business. One mm-hmm. wants out. Well, Main Street Capital can come in. Right. So, yeah, it's a little different than your kind of plain vanilla, you know, private equity backed deals that you would get with a larger BDCs. Gotcha. Um, when you were going through what Prospect does, you mentioned that they have gotten into um, consumer lending and investing companies that do that and some subprime lending. So obviously the question is, how have the if that's kind of a type of transaction that they've done, how did BDCs perform during the downturn? Because this all sounds great. Oh, you get to invest in a smaller company, big upside, great dividends. But what happens when the economy actually went down and these companies suffered. Did the BDCs suffer as well? Well, yeah, I mean, definitely. The BDCs were probably among the hardest hit. Uh, what you have, you know, when you look at a BDC, it's very, uh, I hate this word, but people use it a lot. It's kind of a black box, right? Mm-hmm. You have investments. Most of them have investments in roughly 100, 150 portfolio companies. Wow. And there's no way to know what that's worth, right? So you can turn to Berkshire Hathaway, and you can say, wow, okay, they own X number of shares of American Express. I know what that's worth as a percentage of Berkshire. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that with a BDC. So what happened was these BDCs obviously started trading significantly lower than book value. You know, they would say, we have investments that we say are worth $2 billion, but the market would say, well, sorry, we're basically valuing those at $1 billion. And so what happened was a lot of BDCs were trading at significant significant discounts to their book value, and they were also trading lower and lower and lower as you know 
people became more fearful that, oh, man, 2009 is here. The world is just going to end. So it definitely wasn't, you know, uh, an easy time to hold BBCs. But the people who held through that did very well, especially when you consider that they were still collecting 10% dividend yields. They could reinvest the dividends back into the stock at a significantly lower price. Mm -hmm. And today, now they look like geniuses. So the people who held on for the most part did very, very well through the downturn, uh, assuming, of course, you can tolerate a 50% decline. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it, it sounds almost similar to when, when you think back to the credit crisis and people weren't sure how to value CDOs and other asset-backed securities on bank balance sheets. So that was given a discount in the marketplace. It seems like the exact same thing was happening with BDCs, but maybe even more to a greater extent, because like you said, it, it really is a black box plus the fact that these are smaller companies may be more prone to, to defaulting. Right, right. So, like, you know, give an example of a company. It's on Fifth Street Finance's balance sheet. It's called, or it was, it was called Huddle House. And it's <laughs> it's a knockoff of, say, a Waffle House. Mm -hmm. I don't know why you'd want to knock that off, but, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, because they're private, you have literally no idea what the balance sheets of these private companies look like. That's why it's so important that you can trust, you know, who's running the BDC because mm -hmm. they have to mark these assets every quarter and you have to trust that their marks are accurate and you have to trust that, hey, they're not just slapping a 30 times multiple on the earnings of every company they invest in. Right. So, that you know, and especially when you have a financial crisis, everyone, no one has trust, no one even trusts their grandma. So. <laughs> I don't know about your grandma. Um, yeah. All right. We're, we're going to move on to a question from our mailbag, and I'll kind of summarize the question. Uh, this is a question from Zach, and he sent us an article from Barron's that said, uh, Russell set terms for booting BDCs, uh, basically booting BDCs out of the index. I think S&P 500 was doing the same thing, basically saying, we're not going to have BDCs in our index anymore. And shares of some of these companies sold off because of this announcement. Does this matter? Should we be seeing this as, oh, BDCs don't have a place in your portfolio if even in the indexes don't want them? Well, so you have to kind of look at it both ways. So the reason why they're getting kicked out of the Russell and actually S&P kicked them out of a couple indexes was because the management fees on BDCs pass through in a weird way to exchange trade funds and other funds that might hold them. Hmm. Whereas, say... A real estate investment trust, you can hold that within an ETF or a mutual fund, and the fees don't get passed on. When they report BDC holdings in an, a mutual fund or index fund, the BDC fees that BDCs charge themselves get passed on to that index. So it makes the index look more expensive than what it is. And S&P and Russell have a marketing problem with that because they don't want to go out and say, hey, we have these great index funds that, oh, cost more than – most index funds, when in reality they don't. It's just really kind of a marketing thing. So I don't look at it and see that, you know, the indexes are dumping BDCs and so should I. It's really the indexes need to dump BDCs so they could make their indexes look better. And it's not really a statement on the quality or the investability of a BDC. Gotcha. Now, I think it might create some opportunities, right? So there was a research note that said, something like 8% of all BDC shares are owned by indexes or index funds related to these uh, indexes. So 
I think in the short term, you'll see some selling pressure, obviously, because the indexes have to sell these stocks back right. into the market. But I don't think it's something that necessarily says, hey, if S&P is selling, so should I. Gotcha. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Hopefully, that answers Zach's question. Um, all right, we're going to move away from, from BDCs a little bit here and kind of just step back and go back to some other areas that you like to focus on. And one of them is really, really, really small cap stocks. I mean, so so small that we can't even discuss them here based on Motley Fool guidelines that we're not even allowed to talk about stocks that are under a certain size here. But you look at these for your personal portfolio and you invest in some of these really, really small companies. Can you just walk us through why? Uh, why do you do this? And kind of what's your what's your thought behind this process? Why? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, really... I like I like smaller companies. I, I think they're more understandable, right? Okay. So you go to the SEC and you look up a 10K or 10Q for a company that's maybe worth $100 million, and it's just going to be a lot easier to understand that company than it is a $100 billion company. I think you know I think I can say that as a you know a universal truth. Right. So you look at say like a JP Morgan. You know you have an asset management arm, a credit card arm mortgage banking, consumer banking, investment banking, you know, you've got everything under one umbrella. And then you go and look at a $250 million company, you have like one or two product lines. So it's really simple to understand. And I think in, you know, in a matter of five minutes, you can really say, oh, this is what drives this business. And then when you think about that too, it also allows you to get really specific exposure. So like how many times have you said to yourself, man, I really like this company, but I hate this part of it. Right. right? I'm, sure, I'm sure Carl like, Icahn said that a lot. Oh, yeah, I'm sure Carl Icahn says that every day. Right. So, like, you know, you, like, look at Microsoft and you say, man, I love their office and operating system segment. But, you know, it makes so much cash, but then they go throw it away and bing. So, you know, or you look at, say, Berkshire Hathaway. I personally would love to, like, just love to own just Geico or just these candies. <laughs> but if I buy Berkshire, I have to own the utilities. I have to own the railroad, you know, stuff that doesn't interest me as much. Right. And, I mean, really, I think also when you get into small caps, usually they tend to, this is tend to, and, you know, we're speaking in generalizations here, but they tend to be available at lower prices because not many pe- not as many people are looking at them. They don't get nearly as much coverage, and they're kind of just kind of unloved as a whole. I mean, save for a few small cap tech stocks that really – when headlines, you have a bunch of slow-growing, boring businesses run by someone who might be CEO just because, you know, his dad was. Right. And so I think that creates a lot of opportunity for investors. Interesting. And um, then, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, also in small caps, you tend to get bought out at stupid prices. So, mm. you know, a lot of times you'll have a big company take out a smaller company. And that that's kind of sets the opportunity for you to find a company where – you might get a very favorable exit later on just because a larger firm says, hey, we can buy the small company, fire the management team, uh, refinance their debt because we're bigger at a lower rate. And then you kind of get a premium when that happens because of those, you know, quote unquote synergies that may or may not play through. Exactly. May or may not play through. Usually usually not. Um, yeah, usually not. So, so thinking about these small companies, if someone's out there saying, okay, that sounds great, that all makes sense, how do you go about finding these? Do you do stock screens? Do they just pop up on your radar for, I'm interested in this industry, so I'm going to go find 
a company that is doing this and happens to be small? How do you go about finding these companies? Right. So, I mean, I think one of the best ways, like, stock screens can be a great way to find companies, find new companies, especially when you have an industry screen. So once you understand, say, oil, you can understand, you know, another oil company and, you know. So that's a good way to go through the industry and then learn about them. But really, the way I got my start with it is I kind of took Warren Buffett's advice to heart. It was, hey, start with the A's, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to find great stocks, start with the A's and just go down the list. Right. And what you'll find with small caps is it's much easier to start at the top and just work your way down because because they're so small and because an annual report might only be say, 50 pages, which <laughs> doesn't sound short, but... You can really work through a pile of them in a small amount of time. You can just say, oh, this is awful. This one's headed to bankruptcy. This one's based in China, and I don't believe the accounting, mm-hmm. and tear through them a lot quicker. So, you know, I think stock screeners are a good way to look, maybe, but I think you can also do a lot just by downloading a list of annual reports or just going through the names one by one. I mean, I think we all have some some industries that we prefer, or we all have some business that we know fairly well that we can look at their operating metrics and just say, oh, you know, I like this, or oh, no, that's the pile that just goes straight to the trash bin. Exactly. Very interesting. All right, Jordan, thanks so much for being on. I think you gave us some really, really good insight on BDCs and your smaller cap company. So we will definitely have you on uh, a little bit later. So thanks again for joining us. All right. Thanks, David. That's our show for today. You can find us on Twitter. We are at TMF Financials. You can also shoot us an email. We are at WTMI at Fool.com. We will see you tomorrow with a full interview that Matt Copenheffer did with co-founder of The Motley Fool, David Gardner. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.